the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Parents struggle with several sets of questions when the kids reach that inquisitive age. Uh, Certainly, I think most parents shudder at the notion of having to have the talk. You know the one I'm referring to, the birds and the bees talk and um, largely feel that they are um, wholly unprepared to answer many of the questions that the kiddies will offer up. And, of course, it becomes challenging and problematic. We can't rely on the public school system to provide our kids with sex education. And um, and if they learn it from their peers, uh, it's going to form some very unhealthy relationships and very um, unhealthy lifestyles, potentially. Along with that, I think for Christian parents, there also can be that equal sense of being wholly unprepared to answer many of the questions that our kids pose as they are exploring the claims of Christ and their faith. It is more than just simply saying, because the Bible said so, and, you know, sort of taking the God said it, I believe it, that settles it approach. Um, The kids want real answers to have a real faith. God has no stepchildren. We understand that. But how can you be best prepared to answer some of the toughest questions that your kids may pose regarding their faith and Christianity? Well, Dr. Alex McFarland joins us. He is the author of a number of best-selling books on a variety of topics. He also serves as a radio talk show host. He is director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. And in addition to all of the wonderful books that he has written, the latest one is one that you will want to have handy on your top shelf. It's called simply, 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. And Dr. McFarland, always a delight and an education to have you join us. Well, thank you so much, Craig. It really is a thrill to be on with you. I'm deeply grateful. Is this a parallel that I draw between uh, sometimes the awkwardness that parents feel in answering questions regarding sexuality, the birds and the bees, equally up there with questions regarding faith? I mean, when when your kid comes to you straight-faced and says, Daddy or Mommy, why does God allow suffering? Boy, you know, we, we tend to kind of come with the platitudes, but we don't always have the strong theological response that the kids really need, do we? Yeah, I think that's a great parallel that you draw. Um, Moms and dads get nervous about having the talk, you know, regarding sexuality, and I think they procrastinate and and sometimes push away opportunities to talk about deep spiritual matters as well. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, not only culturally but scripturally, uh, moms and dads need to be able to help their kids process the the questions about God and Christianity and spiritual growth that uh, are natural that that kids will ask. You know, we're we're inquisitive creatures and we're spiritually inquisitive as well. And sometimes mom and dad uh, avoid those types of questions or. 
they'll they'll reprimand their kids and say, you know, you shouldn't ask things like that. Uh, maybe because they themselves don't really know a good solid answer. So the book is designed to equip moms and dads. It's a fun book. I mean, there's there's questions kids ask me that were funny, poignant, touching, probing, uh, and so there are many questions from interviews that we did with about 111 children. I'm curious if there is a degree to this in which parents are sometimes awkward or reluctant um, or feel chagrined at answering questions because their own base knowledge is a bit lacking. And I pose that question because there are parents that I know that have, uh, on the topic of the birds and the bees, kind of taken the, you know... with sexuality as complicated as it is these days, I don't know. I was raised in the 50s. Things have changed so much. I, I'm just maybe more content to allow the kids, their smart kids, to go out and explore and find the answers on their own. Is that approach dangerous, particularly when it comes to spiritual matters? Well, it is, Craig, because for one thing, it's communicating a message to your children that these things just really aren't that important. I mean, you know, if if they really were that significant, you know, mom and dad would have taken the time to carve out an answer or to, you know, get a handle on on a good perspective. But um, you know, really, Christianity uh, is a it's a faith system that has good answers to the questions. Uh, we have good evidence for the claims of Christ, but Christianity is a, a, a relationship driven. Uh, faith, uh, not only our relationship with the Lord Jesus, but um, passing it on, evangelism and discipleship and the spiritual mentoring of children, it's, it's, I guess for lack of a better word, I would call it life-on-life transference. And who better to inform the spiritual perspective of children, who better to do that than mom and dad? But, you know, the old thing, you can't give away what you don't have. Uh, if there's going to be transference and life-on-life, you know, discipleship, mom and dad have to have a, a robust faith of their own. And so we talk about that in the book, that, um, you know, the opportunity to answer your kids' questions, you know, might be really a, a reminder to drill down deeply uh, in your own life, mom and dad. And and obviously, you know, sometimes the inclination toward um, being dismissive, Um, minimizing the importance of what might seemingly be a benign question to you that, in fact, is a deep-searching, probative question for a young person who, yes, maybe raised in church and you had a family altar in the evenings, you know, uh, many families that will spend uh, moments in the Bible every night together, things of this sort, particularly when the kids are younger, and you thought you've done everything that you can do to help establish a firm foundation in their faith, and in fact, they've just been kind of going through the paces or the motions and are now beginning to ask the tough questions that at some point in life all of us ask of what God, who God, where God, why God, uh, what of sin, what of salvation, what of my relationship to God, who is Jesus Christ, things of this sort. Our children deserve these answers because God, as we say, has no stepchildren, and they will not, uh, uh, these kids cannot uh, vicariously live out their relationship of, uh, with Christ through you. So how can we be best prepared to answer some of the toughest questions that your kids may ask regarding Christianity? Dr. Alex McFarland is with us tonight to help illuminate on all these matters. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeed. And back to the conversation tonight. Dr. Alex McFarland is with us. You know him as the author of a number of New York Times bestselling books, including 10 Answers for Skeptics, uh, Core Truths You Must Know for an Unshakable Faith, uh, 10 Common Questions or Objections, rather, to Christianity, and now his latest book, The 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. Let's get to your calls. We're going to lead off first for Dr. McFarland in Sonoma. Aaron, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Alex McFarland. Hi there. Certainly, I've been a parent for seven years now. We've got little ones, and our faith, my husband and I, has really you know strengthened and solidified in so many ways, and we're just on our own journey, and with our kids, it's a beautiful thing, and I, I feel really blessed and, and really grateful, but the most challenging part of parenthood for me that I would love to hear your perspective on is not so much the interaction that I have with my kids, because I feel like we're learning and growing together every day, but my, my uh, husband and I growing up in Christian households have parents that look at us in a way that, and, and expect us to behave in a way and teach our children in the same way that they have taught us, and we're not the same people. And so with our family and with other folks, it's just the most challenging part of parenthood. Are you talking about in the sense of what, like certain traditions or just um, uh, parent, parenting styles? Overall, you know, like when I was pregnant with my second child, my mom asked me, you know, do you really believe? And, you know, they sort of think, like, if I don't express it in the same way, then it must not be correct. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I might not be passing it on. And um, my father-in-law said, you know, we're really the godparents for children. Um, as if we can't do it ourselves. <laughs> or, I mean, of course, everybody, it takes a village for sure. But, you know, these things that are passed on, I think it's important to realize that as much as we have the common um, faith and common denominators, we're all on our own journey and path, and we sort of have to respect how we're doing this, you know, and being really careful that our children will come up in their time, but we do have to leave them, and we can't let go, and we have to guide them, you know, at least until they're 18, but I'm sure it goes on and on and on, you know, that's the Oh yeah, ask, ask any parent with kids in their 40s and 50s and they'll and they'll tell you that. So, all right, uh, let's uh, let's turn to Dr. McFarland for a response. Um, Alex, this of course is a predicament oftentimes uh, parents may have a certain parenting style or a manner in which they feel the spiritual legacy should be uh, passed on and all of a sudden they see their own kids with kids of their own, and maybe they're not insisting that they be involved in uh, Royal Rangers or whatever the case might be. Talk a bit about that, if you would. Well, you, you know, um, salvation is the same for all people in that we put our faith in the Lord Jesus. But Christian growth is kind of different for, for all people. You know, what um, is a catalyst in the Christian growth of one person? Um, God might use something different to spiritually mature another person. And so I want to say a big word of encouragement to the caller and to all moms and dads that, um, you know, uh, there, there will be no shortage of people to give advice or even to be sometimes critical, but don't let that discourage you, and don't let that uh, make you second-guess yourself just by virtue of being mom and dad. Uh, just genetically, you've got home court advantage, and nobody can... Nobody can influence the spiritual direction of a child like the parent. Um, it, you know, it's very poignant in um, 
uh, Deuteronomy 6 and Exodus 13, where the Word of God um, says, you know, when it comes to pass that your son will ask you, why do we do these things? Then you will say, when Pharaoh would not let us go, God with a strong hand brought us out. And, and it kind of the implication is that your children will look to mom and dad and say, hey, I, I want what you've got. So I would say um, be in the Word, be in prayer. Uh, you make sure that you're walking with Jesus, and then let the Holy Spirit do the driving. And over time and through circumstances and just consistent, authentic Christian living, uh, God will, God will um, steer you in the way that you can best be the Christian parent that your children need. Is it a difference, Alex, between sort of um, forcing our children into the Christian mold versus modeling our own faith? You know, the do as I do versus do as I don't, uh, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say kind of scenario. Uh, it's very much modeling, I think, that, that is the, the winning uh, approach. My friend Josh McDowell uh, who I'll be with him Thursday and Friday in Texas, actually. But Josh says, you know, rules without relationship breeds rebellion. Mm-hmm. And and just a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, while it's important to have standards, but just a list of, of do's and don'ts uh, won't cut it. I, I think legalism has created more skeptics and atheists than all the uh, naturalistic philosophy. Well, and I think we all know cases. I certainly can cite them from uh, my uh, my sphere of, uh, of acquaintances where parents on some occasion would insist that the child go to Sunday school and things of this sort. They themselves, however, not fully to participate. And then when the child is, uh, you know, of age, 18, moves out of the house and suddenly, you know, um, uh, dumps church and never wants to go back, wonders, well, what happened? You know, it's got to be, like you say, modeled so that the old saying, more is caught than taught. Now, there does need to be some good intellectual content. Uh, There needs to be substantive answers to the questions, and that's what we do in the book. We try to give good answers, uh, age-appropriate answers, because in in the 111 children I interviewed, we we would notice that the questions of a 5, 6, 7-year-old uh, were different than the questions of a 10, 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, a pre, pre-adolescent. So it's a combination of both. But even, um, let, me, let me say mom and dad, you don't, don't feel like, um, gee, I, I'd better be a, a theologian, um, you know, to be able to speak into the lives of my children. Oftentimes, just the, the, the visual that mom and dad love Jesus, that they're walking with the Lord, and uh, there is there is a good answer to all the questions, even if if I don't know what it is. Um, the, there's there's just a trust that seems to be bred in the heart of a child when they see mom and dad consistently, authentically living out their faith. And then there'll come time when you can have the the conversations, like we talked about, the spiritual coming of age conversations. But um, you know, I would say mom and dad one of the most potent apologetics that you can set forth before the watching eyes of your kids is your own authentic, committed walk with Jesus Christ every single day. This is sort of the uh, the Pauline follow me as I follow Christ approach? Absolutely. 
Dr. Alex McFarlane with us tonight. He, Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. He is also the host of Explore the Word radio program, nationally syndicated. Um, he has traveled and spoken to over a thousand churches during his apologetics career and um, written a number of best-selling books. No doubt this one destined to be the next bestseller. 21 toughest questions your kids will ask about Christianity. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Best-selling author Dr. Alex McFarland, his new book, 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. By the way, the book available through the usual suspects, meaning uh, Bay Area bookstores. I think there's one or two of those that still exist. Amazon.com and also through uh, Dr. McFarland's website, 21toughestquestions.com. And that's spelled out, I mean uh, enumerated. 2121toughestquestions.com. Do some parents in your experience, Dr. McFarland, feel threatened when their kids start to approach them, particularly as a child gets to be of age, you know, uh, early teens, things of that sort? And here you've been dutiful in terms of taking the kids to school, to Sunday school and church, and you really thought you've done everything right, and you feel firm that your child has a strong uh, faith experience, and then they come start asking these very fundamental questions. Do parents sometimes get defensive on that? Uh, yeah, they do. And and let me say this: uh, I'm not, you know, bashing mom and dad or being critical. But not only do moms and dads sometimes get defensive, but sometimes they just make excuses. And you know, in doing all these interviews, um, periodically I would hear moms and dads say. You know, oh my goodness! You know, I'm not a theologian. I, you know, I've never been to seminary. I'm I'm just a mom and a dad. And you know, let me say this: to shape the spiritual lives of your kids, you don't have to be a theologian. But before God and uh, in the sight of of the Lord and the Church, um, in the home, uh, parents are called to be the spiritual drivers of the family. Really. And so uh, I, I challenge moms and dads in the book, you know, avoid the deer in the headlights look. You know, when, you're, when your children ask things like, you know, did the baby Jesus wear diapers? Or if God made everything, who made God? Uh, and how does God hear the prayers of all the people in the world at once? You know, things like that. One little boy asked the question, uh, you know, my pastor says Jesus and Satan are fighting. What are they fighting with, lasers? <laughs> you, you know, um, you know, use use these these wonderful opportunities to show that uh, the the questions have answers. Um, but let me say this: oftentimes, I think in in recent decades of Christianity, there's the assumption that uh, I pray the sinner's prayer, Lord, come into my life and save me, Amen, and that's it. And I wait around five more decades, and someday I'll die, um, and just. Getting saved is the end of the equation. Um, there's also the um, kind of the the assumption, you know, if I if my child goes to youth group or Sunday school, check that box off, uh, the duty is done, and that's the end of my job. 
and it, it's it's so much more than that. And what a what a wonderful opportunity it is. But you know, Second uh, Peter one sixteen says we have not followed cleverly devised fables. Um, the gospel is not faith alone. It is faith, but it's a faith validated by compelling lines of evidence. So it, it's not just that we're going to resolve to believe a myth in spite of the evidence. No, we, we can defend our faith because of the great evidence. And so mom and dad uh, embrace this wonderful calling, this wonderful opportunity, because in you know prepping to build spiritual champions out of your children, uh, you yourself will probably grow and mature, and your love of Jesus uh, and your confidence in him will, will, will grow as well. In that sense, then, is it better when a child presents a theological question that we may not feel fully comfortable in asking, especially if they, you know, come into something that's, that's fairly deep and we feel like we're just ill-equipped is it better to say, I don't know, than to lie or to, uh, you know, try and make something up? Oh, yeah. I mean, don't snow job a child. They'll see it from a mile away. And, and certainly don't uh, just make up a lie because they'll be on the Internet and they'll, they'll find out the truth. You know, um, know this, that, that we live in a time of so much information that if you don't uh, proactively give the answers and chart the course, uh, your kids will find a spiritual roadmap somewhere, and it might not be the right one. And so um, it's perfectly fine. In fact, it's really healthy sometimes when the parent says, hey, that's a, that's a great question. You know, uh, give me a couple of days, and together let's, let's work through this together. But, um, you know, there is mystery. Even uh, the deepest Christian, I mean, think of you know, think of somebody like a Billy Graham or or a David Jeremiah or the great Christian leaders that we look up to. Uh, there's still things that they are learning, and there's still mystery. Um, there's so much we do know, and then there are things that uh, this side of heaven will never know. And so uh, let let your sons and daughters know that uh, Christianity is is concrete, but it's abstract. I mean, we know Jesus died and rose again. Uh, there's an empty tomb. He literally was nailed to a cross to pay for our sins. So there, there's much about the faith that is concrete and, uh, and provable and documentable. But then there, then there are things like, um, you know, when will Jesus come back? We, we just don't know. Um, why does a good, godly, faithful Christian family suffer the loss of a loved one? Um, why can a faithful Christian get laid off of their job? Uh, you know, we don't know all the answers, but we know God is faithful. You know, C.S. Lewis, Craig, C.S. Lewis said um, regarding the death of his own wife, and here's a guy that had given much of his adult life to defending the faith, and he lost his wife. His wife passed away, and Lewis uh, wrote, uh, God, I know now why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions flee away. And so it's okay for a mom and dad to say, you know what, son, I don't really know, but I'll try to find out. But there, there are hard, concrete facts, and then there are 
there, there are areas of mystery where we have to trust God. And then, too, aren't we, don't we need to be sensitive in terms of the degree of maturity of the child, both from a spiritual standpoint and an age standpoint? I mean, that, that whole milk-to-meat thing. I mean, I have seen some parents who, for example, are big fans in the study of eschatology and uh, dispensationalism. They've got down pat. Uh, explaining to a child uh, sin, death, judgment, damnation, sin, salvation, sanctification. The child knows nothing of that, but mom or dad drags the kids off to every single conference on eschatology they can get their hands on. That's true. That's true. And you know what? Uh, Steak is a wonderful thing, but if you cram it down the throat of an infant, uh, it probably will choke. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, I've got to say this um, from preaching in 1,400 churches and being president of a seminary, uh, I love the body of Christ, and I love believers of all strata, but um, there are believers that um, are, you know, straight as an arrow theologically, but as, as empty as, as, as a bank vault uh, as far as their heart and their joy. And like so much of, of the Christian life, um, there, there's got to be a balance. There's, there's um, learning and knowledge and content and data, but then there's, there's trust and waiting on God. And, uh, you know, we don't want to make the Bible say less than what it says, but we don't want to make the Bible say more than what it says. Um, and that, that balance of having standards but not being legalistic, um, knowing that we're free in Christ, but that doesn't mean that we're free to go and, and sin uh, with no restraint. And so, um, you know, I was in Colorado, Craig, speaking at a men's retreat and doing some of this content while the book was in process about a year and a half ago, because I spent over two years on this one book. And, uh, you know, I was talking about being a godly man and a husband and a father, and uh, uh, during the break a man came up and he said, you know, Alex, I hear you, this is great, you know, but, I mean, the kind of disciple you're talking about to love Jesus and love the family and First Peter, you know, lay down your life for your spouse and, you know, the kind of Christian you're talking about, I mean, that would be like like every day, 24-7. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> I think that's what God calls us to, to uh, give him 100%. And so uh, more than ever in this culture, in this milieu... Uh, that's what we Christians are called to do, to give Jesus our all, and it will bear fruit in the lives of the next generation, our kids uh, who follow after us. And certainly in the process of giving all to Christ and training up a child in the way that he should go, uh, wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book. 21 toughest questions your kids will ask about Christianity, and not only can be a great primer for mom and dad uh, when the questions arise, but also take you deeper, foundationally speaking, into your own faith. The book, again, is available at um, 21toughestquestions.com. That's the number 21toughestquestions.com, or, of course, amazon.com. And as always, our thanks and appreciation for his time in the insights. Dr. Alex McFarland, Christian Worldview and Apologetics Director at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. (laughs) 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think about your relationship with others, so much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God-Shaped Brain. Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist and master psychopharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delightful delight now, to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever, the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science, brain science, is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible, rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. We hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of, uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, and the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers. You actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and, uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and the, and the keflins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, uh, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer 
what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to beat this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God based on maybe the the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God. You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator, who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these, these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process and things changed, and you, you can see that history where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the Crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to impose rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that, that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our, our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely. And what's, uh, what's uh, striking is that m- most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian, somebody in a Wiccan camp wor- worshiping, you know, white witchcraft, and these they would say, oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking, though, is that within Christianity, within any, any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians, and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed them, but you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God, and and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak? Uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in, in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life. I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I... Um, was challenged by my faculty, who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked 
like historic psychiatrists often have, down on those who do look on God as somehow being, un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way. And so they really challenged us, and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and, and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept. And uh, these ideas were very challenging for me, and I had the premise that, okay, I believe God is real. If he is real, then the evidence should support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God's Word and not have to simply say, well, I believe and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts. And, uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there, and it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and, and validating to, to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence-based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the, um, in the patient relationship in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint uh, on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, who is self-sacrificial and beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental punishing God, and one believes God is, is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them? Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people, and I've had patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault, because when she was an adolescent, she'd gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her, and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes, I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors. And this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chron- chronic fear and anxiety going, whereas if you come back to a knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the interfacing of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there. And, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong. And it doesn't go your way, and it doesn't feel good, and you just don't, you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything. 
wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself. We're exploring that equation, a look at the God-shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life, written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 